and welcome to episode five of Folia Day. Can you believe we've been doing this for five weeks? No. Mad. <laughs> um, I am Amy and this lovely lady sitting across from me is Elle. Hello. And we're going to tell you about some murders. Have you, oh, is yours a murder this week? Many murders. Oh. Oh. Is yours a murder? Yeah. Okay. With a bit of a, a bit extra. A bit of mystery. Mm-hmm. I love a mystery. You'll be proud of me. This one. So, what have you been up to this week? Again, I've been really boring. I've just been doing uni work, so I have nothing to discuss this week. What about you? Um, uni work as well, and then working my life away at actual work. Mm-hmm. But I did go see that murder live show. You did. That I was talking about last week. That was definitely something. It mm-hmm. was. It was really, really good. However, if anyone is going to see it and happens to be listening, eat before you go. So they, like, when you were setting it up, it was like, do you have certain dietary requirements? Mm-hmm. Two of our members of, like, two of the party members, party. I guess, need gluten-free food. Mm-hmm. They can't have gluten. So I put in the thing, any dietary requirements? I was like, yes, two of the members of our party are, like, required gluten-free food. Sent that away. Get to the venue. And they did pizza. So, like, we walk over and Bobby's like... Hi, can I have this pizza, please? But can I have it, like, gluten-free? And they were like, oh, we don't have any gluten-free. They're like, what? And they were like, the power went off. The power went out. So they had pizza, but they also had, like, beef brisket in a bun. Okay. Which was gluten-free, but the other one wasn't. How is the bun? Well, maybe just gluten-free bread. Yeah. Okay. They must have, like, a, a special select few buns. But then, um, anyway, so then they couldn't eat. So Bobby had to then oh. get up. Bobby then went, was like, oh, I'm not going to get a pizza. I'm just going to go over the snack place. Mm-hmm. They were selling, like, Doritos, popcorn, like, bags of sweets, Starburst, stuff yeah. like that. He gets there and he's like, oh, can I have, like, tangy cheese Doritos? I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. What dip do you want? And he's like, oh, I don't want a dip. Oh, you will buy a dip if you want some Doritos. <laughs> you will. So they're like, you have to, if you wanted Doritos, you've got to buy a dip. So he was like, right, fine, I'll have both. Six pound, <gasps> they both came to. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, wow. Um, we were worried because we've seen reviews online. But mm. the actual part of, the like murder part of it was really interesting. Yeah. And we don't find out the verdict until May. So we no gave what we gave, yeah. So we we were a hung jury. Like each table mm-hmm. is a jury. We were hung. Um, most of the mem- oh, five members said not guilty. So me, Jenny, Rach, and Bobby were like not guilty. Not enough evidence. Mm-hmm. It's all like really circumstantial. Wouldn't feel like right to put this person away for these murders. And did Mark say guilty? Of course, Mark said guilty. <laughs> he was like, it's guilty, definitely guilty. I'm like Mark. But this was before, to be fair, this was before he even went. He was like, someone's going down for these murders. You're like, Mark, it's theoretical. Like, at least... I haven't even arrived. And he was like, guilty. And there was a guy opposite, because obviously you're, like, talking to... You're in a group of... A table of 12. Mm. But there was only five of us, so other people sat on our table. And there was one guy who was like, absolutely, definitely, 100%, can't be swayed. This, 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 and this. And we were like, oh, yeah, but what about this? And he was like, nah, this is too much of a coincidence for all of this. And he was just like, nah. Him and Mark would have got on really, really well. Wow. But yeah, Mark was very passionate about them being guilty. 
It was like, we were all like, oh, well, I'm not too sure. And Mark was like, pass over the paper, I'll write down that. <laughs> so, yeah, we were hung. We were hung, and I think the majority of everyone else was hung. Mm-hmm. So, like, as a as an event, you would have to go to a retrial. Oh. Yeah. But I was, um, everyone was like, so th- is this what it was like on your, your real trial? I was like, oh, yeah, some of it. It was really strange, um, but I was the foreman for the table. Um, what does the foreman do? So I went up to get like the evidence. I gave the verdict. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I didn't have to speak in front of a room of like two hundred odd people, so I just had my little piece of paper mm-hmm. with the verdict on. Put that in. Um, but yeah, they even had like fake evidence and stuff. Ooh. Yeah, it's like a a grey hoodie with like blood spatter on and a mm. hole in the head. Um, it was really good. Um, but my feet were freezing by the end of it. It was in a tent, wasn't it? It was in a tent. It was a heated tent. Okay. And they did supply blankets. But, oh, my little tootsies. are cold, like. <laughs> I was, like, writing all the... Because you got, like, a piece of paper to write everything down. Well, sorry, you had to buy a piece of paper to write everything down. Yeah. You got, like, a pen, a, like, a program. Yeah. And that had a bit to write in. Okay. So, whereas I just... There was a bit which said what kind of seating it was. So it's like pri- premier table, standard oh, okay. table. So I just turned that over and wrote on that because I'm fat pod. I'm poor. <laughs> so then halfway through, I was writing down and I just wrote because uh, Mark and Bobby kept like looking over to see what I'd wrote to mm-hmm. see if they agreed. And just at the bottom, was like, my feet are cold. <laughs> so chilly. But apart from, it was a really good night. We did have a really good night. Um, but we got there because we went straight after work, finished work at four. The event didn't start till seven. We were just sat in the car listening to karaoke songs to sing in the future. <laughs> like, oh, this is a good Aww. one. Dry County. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Mm-hmm. Are you sad you missed it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was really fun. Um, really intense. And they, they were like proper actors, so mm. they were getting really upset. And the guy that was on the stand was like twitching nervously and like, mm. oh, it's quite interesting. So um, this is the story of 195 Melrose Avenue. Fantastic. Ideal. Oh, and I've written his name directly underneath. Chapman. So, welcome. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born in Aberdeenshire in 1945 as one of three children. His parents were really unhappily married and they divorced pretty much straight after they've had their third child in 1948. I know that name, but I don't Do know you? why I know that name. So... Nielsen was very close with his maternal grandfather, who died quite suddenly at the age of 62, while he was fishing in the North Sea. And Hmm. afterwards, obviously they'd been really close, so Nielsen became very withdrawn and isolated. He would often go by himself to go down to the harbour and just watch boats as a young child, unattended. He just wanted to be alone, which is quite sad. sad. It is sad, isn't mm-hmm. it? I just stood there watching boats. One day... <laughs> stood watching stood boats. Watching boats. <laughs> One day, while he was stood watching boats <laughs> at the beach, he accidentally became submerged underwater and was almost just dragged out to sea. Another like, young child had to come and pull him back to the shore. And he was fine. There's no brain damage or any weird suspect thing. But obviously, it's quite a big thing to happen to you at such a young age. Mm -hmm. Super dramatic. Yeah. 
soon after that day, uh, Nelson's mother remarried and they moved away from the sea. Mm-hmm. But he really resented his new stepfather. He was really strict. It wasn't his dad. Classic, classic situation. Yeah. During his teenage years, Nielsen discovered that he was attracted to other men. Okay. But he felt deeply kind of disgusted by it. He was ashamed. What year was this, sorry? This was in... This will have been about the 1950s, late uh, 50s, so early 60s. Before it was... More acceptable. Yeah. He didn't want to tell any of his family or his friends, so he just didn't talk about it. Although he did try and attempt to understand where these feelings might have come from. Mm-hmm. And he'd noticed that most of the kind of boys his age that he found attractive looked like his sister. His younger sister, Sylvia. That's very strange. Yeah, it gets stranger. So to try and understand what was going on, he then started to touch Sylvia while she was asleep. No, Dennis. Because he believed that the attraction and like the sexual feelings he had... He was just getting confused about, like, caring for his sister. Okay. And he couldn't quite understand why he looked at other people that looked like her. Yeah. And found them, like, sexually attractive. That didn't solve anything in his mind. So he then began, or on one occasion, had attempted to do the same thing to his older brother mm-hmm. while he was asleep. But then he was having none of this, suspected that he might have been gay, and began to bully him while they were in public or when they were at home. He used to, like, tease him. And he used to call him Hen, which, especially in the oh, north and in really Scotland, yeah. is, like... A pet name. Yeah, a pet, quite a affectionate name for yeah. a woman. Like Hen or Henny or... Like, you're right, Hen. Yeah. So he started to try and, like, tease him by calling him Hen. By the time he was 14, he'd had enough. He joined the army cadet force, hoping that one day he could actually join like the army and he could go away and he could forget all of this had ever happened. No one would bully him, no one would call him hen. He'd be in the army. Years later, he was successfully accepted into the army and he said that the three years of training that you do was the happiest time of his life. He kept his kind of sexual orientation and his feelings to himself but he was kind of well integrated into kind of the army group that he was in yeah in 1964 he passed his catering exams because that's like the branch of the army that he wanted to be in okay and he was then assigned to a station in germany the problem was he quickly began to really heavily drink and if anyone kind of mentioned it it was to help his shyness he wanted to come out of his shell. When he was drunk, he could, like, relax. Yeah. That was his reason why. Although one evening, he had been drinking with another young German man mm-hmm. to the point where they'd both blacked out. When he woke up, he realised that he had a fantasy where a young, small, kind of thin man would be completely passive even to the point of being unconscious mm-hmm. so that he could have sex with him oh that's really not good nothing happened that night yeah but he realized that, that was the kind of thing that he was into then every night since that occasion 
he would pretend to be drunk while all of his other like army friends would be getting actually drunk in the hope that one of his colleagues would become something that he quoted an unconscious body for him to make sexual use of. Oh, Dennis. He said that? Yeah. <sighs> Bad move, Dennis. Not... Not okay. Not okay. Then, in 67, so a couple of years later, he was deployed to South Arabia. Yeah. Which no longer is called that, I think. Mm. But was called that in the day. Where he worked as a cook in a prison. This job was much more dangerous than any place he'd been stationed before. At one point in the kind of years that he was there, he'd been kidnapped by a taxi driver who had then beaten him up and, like, stuffed him in the trunk of his car. Good. The guy, or the taxi driver, then gets him out of the trunk and tries to pull him along the ground, but he's become conscious again, attacks the taxi driver back, and Mm -hmm. locks him inside of his own car. Oh. This experience of the taxi driver, alongside a lot of, like, the deaths and war injuries that he'd seen in South Arabia, led to him having, like, a different kind of sexual fantasy about him being able to have kind of dominating sex. It's really strange that all these traumatic events are turned into sexual fantasies rather than like PTSD Mm -hmm. and things like that. It's strange how his brain is doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So he's now having like thoughts and fantasies of having dominating sex with the corpse of a thin young man who would have recently died in battle. Oh, yeah. So all of these fantasies are getting more extreme and more weird, and and we've talked about this before. Like whatever you like, but when it starts to hurt other people, it's not all right. When you're imagining yourself having sex with, a... fantasizing about someone dying so that you can do that. Mm. But it's funny that there he's not worried about like he's not bothered about killing them. He's just like oh. Hope they die via... Via wall. Yeah, and then I'll... So then I can reap the benefit. Oh, Dennis. So after he finishes serving in Arabia, he comes back home, travels around a bit with the army, and has his first sexual experience with a female sex worker while he's in Berlin. Okay. At first, he kind of brags about it with all of his army friends. Like, oh, yeah, she was amazing. She was all of this. Mm -hmm. It was fantastic. But then later, when people kind of question him further, he says that sex is overrated and depressing. Oh. If someone said that about me, I'd be After you'd be given it your all. (laughs) Yeah. Especially, I don't know, maybe as a sex worker, you kind of assume that you've got the skills. Yeah. The required stuff to make someone enjoy. Yeah. No, it's depressing. Yeah, that's strange. It's a weird that he's saying that. But then equally, it wasn't that it was the act of having sex with a sex worker that was depressing. Because mm-hmm. I can also understand if they're in a difficult situation and they're having to do a job that they don't want to do to earn a living. That they wouldn't... That might be depressing. Yeah. No, it was the physical act of having sex with a woman that was depressing. In 1972... Mm-hmm. He had completed his service in the army and instead of moving back home to Scotland to go back to his family, 
moved around a little bit and then decided to settle in London and he wanted to join the Metropolitan Police Force. Okay. He really enjoyed the job, but he missed having the like companionship and the camaraderie of having all of his army friends with him. Yeah. He found it quite lonely and quite isolating. Similar to what he'd had before he went in the army. He's okay. kind of gone back to this state of being alone. He started to drink alone every evening. Or then he would notice that he shouldn't be alone. And then would go to kind of gay bars in the area. He was having lots of casual sex with different men. Okay. It's kind of spiralling a little bit out of control. He noticed this as well and decided that he needed a change. Mm-hmm. He left the police force. He moved from kind of job to job, moved to different areas of London, and he decided to stay in Kentish Town, working as an executive officer for the job centre. Okay. Very different yeah. to the army or to the police. So in 1975, he's 30 years old at this point. He's done a lot with his life. Yeah. I'm surprised when you said 30 there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that. He intervenes when he sees that two men are threatening 20-year-old David Gallican outside of a pub. Okay. Takes David back to his place where they spend the evening kind of drinking and talking. And he discovers that Gallaghan had recently moved to London. He's gay, he's unemployed, and he's living in a hostel. Okay. After the first night that they've met, the next morning, they both agree to go and find a house together. Fast, but... So fast. You do you. Again, do whatever you like. It's just strange. Maybe a background check. Phone it be buddies at the Met. Heard about this guy. Yeah. Is that safe? He's just moved to the area. He's unemployed. Just, can you run a few numbers? Someone living out of a hostel. Now, I know people are put in diff- difficult situations and mm. people don't have jobs and everything like that. But that's quite a big risk. Yeah. One that I don't think uh, Denny and Dave would be too pleased if I jumped into. No. So they find a place. It's 195 Melrose Avenue. Ah. As I have previously mentioned. (laughs) It's a ground floor flat. And when they're kind of looking for places, the garden at the back is kind of a shared access to all of the flats. Okay. But Nielsen requests that if they're going to live there, the garden has to be only for their use. Oh, they I think see it's strange, <laughs> but it's agreed to. They can rent this flat. The garden is only theirs. Okay. Within a year of them living together, the honeymoon phase has ended. Their relationship is really strained. Nelson said that he's still sexually attracted to David, but they don't have sex. They sleep in separate beds. And then they both begin to bring home different men to casually have sex with in different rooms. Dog you. That's probably not the healthiest of options. I'd argue at that point you're possibly not in a relationship anymore. <laughs> but again, you do. I you. don't know. <laughs> do whatever you like. That's up to you. In 1977, so this has been two years since they met, David tries to end their relationship. Mm-hmm. But it leads to a really heated argument between him and Nilsson. He says that he was never abusive, he never touched him but it was a really heated and aggressive argument where he demanded that David has to leave immediately, never come back, this is my home, you leave. So he does. Yeah. 
over the next year, Nilsson goes on to have many kind of short relationships with guys that he's picking up in bars and meeting at pubs and things, but none of them are successful. And again, he's living alone. He doesn't know anyone. He's back to being kind of by himself. On 30th of December 1978, Nilsson had been drinking really heavily all evening and meets 14-year-old Stephen Holmes in a pub. Wow, that's young. Yes. So Stephen had been trying to buy alcohol underage, unsuccessfully, of course, because he's a 14-year-old child. But Nilsson had assumed that Stephen was maybe about 17. Never assume. Never Never assume. assume. Ask for ID. At just the beginning of the conversation, do you have any ID? <laughs> Anything. Yeah, you need something like 14. And especially now, I know it might not have been like that back then. People can be any age. You can't tell. You really can't, especially with like, I know, I know it's different with girls because you've got makeup and you can like dress yourself up. Mm. But guys, like... Um, if you've got a beard from a young age, if you're quite tall... You can get away with a lot. Mm. Yeah. So he just assumes that he's 17 because he's trying to be served alcohol. He's probably on the border of being legal. And he invites him to come back to his flat. He's like, look, I've got loads of alcohol at home. We can like chill and listen to some music. We'll just spend the night getting drunk mm-hmm. kind of thing. So Stephen agrees. And they get so drunk that they just pass out asleep. When Nielsen wakes up the next morning, he's really afraid of being alone. And he thinks that as soon as Stephen Holmes wakes up, he's going to leave. Okay. And he doesn't want that to happen. He said that in his own head, he decided that he's going to stay for New Year. So it's the 30th of December. Okay. Rolled around to the next day, that's the 31st. So then he just decided that they were going to spend the day together in... And celebrate New Year's or whatever. Okay. That's what he said happened in his head. What actually happened is that he grabbed a tie from the bedside table, mm-hmm. wrapped it around his neck and began to strangle him. Until, Whilst he was asleep? Yeah. Until Stephen was unconscious. He then didn't think that was enough and had to fill a bucket full of water and drown Stephen in it to make sure that he was dead. That's strange that he went from strangling him to drowning him yeah to just make definitely sure just to be really sure it is apparently really quite hard to strangle someone apparently it takes like a lot of muscle a lot of people think that they've done it and they've just they haven't not been able to do it oh that's interesting Mm -hmm. so he then masturbates over Stephen's body twice ew yeah and then decides Stephen still isn't going to leave me Mm -hmm. and stores his body under the floorboards where it then stays for nearly eight months. The smell. Before he decides that he needs to build a bonfire in the garden to get rid of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, He was quoted again, I put another really weird quote, saying, I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or if it had started to decompose. I pulled him back up, pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed his body. 
There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were much more relaxed than when I had put him down there. That's so disturbing. Yeah, the fact that he washed him and like is taking care of him. Is looking after him. Yeah. Yeah, really strange. So that was the December of 78. Mm -hmm. He's down there for eight months. So then in October of 79, Nilsen met Andrew Ho, who was a student from Hong Kong at another local pub. He promised him that, oh, if you come back to my house, we'll have sex. It doesn't have to be anything like, this isn't a relationship. Yeah. I just, let's both go and have sex. When they get back to the flat, he attempts to repeat his first murder and began to strangle him. Mm -hmm. Only this time, Andrew had managed to escape. Nilsson was questioned about the incident, but Hull mysteriously decided not to press charges and it was just dropped. Okay. Mm. Then two months later, in a different local pub, Nilsson met Kenneth Ockenden, a student tourist from Canada, and he offered to show him like all the sites and the landmarks of London, but I'll only do that if you come back to my flat now. Okay. Of course. He actually agrees to come with him and the pair both go into like a corner shop and buy numerous bottles of alcohol and Kenneth doesn't let Nilsson pay. He's like, we're at least going to split this. Like, I'm not letting you buy all of this alcohol for me. Like, we're going to share this. Okay. It seemed like they were both equally as excited about going back to his house. Yeah, it wasn't like he was dragging him against his will. Yes. So then again, they get back to his flat and Nilsson's like, oh, we should listen to some music and gives Kenneth some headphones. Kenneth just sat listening to the music and Nilsson grabs the cord of the headphones that he's Mm -hmm. just given him and is choking him with them. He then starts to drag him along the floor with the same wire from the headphones. And when he's sure that he's dead, unwraps the headphones, mm-hmm. pours himself a drink, sits down and just listens to what was playing. Oh. Yeah, that face is correct. <laughs> so the next day, he decides to take uh, loads of Polaroid photos of Kenneth's body in different, like, sexually suggestive positions. But then he decides, oh, well, me and Kenneth are just going to watch something on the TV. So spreads his naked body on the bed and lays next to him and just watches TV for a few hours. Oh, he's really not very well. No. He then wraps up Kenneth's body in plastic bags. Mm Mm-hmm. And decides again to put it under the floorboards, but this time it's a bit more protected. But would regularly remove him from the floorboards, sit him next to him on the sofa, and they would just watch TV together. He seems so protective over the bodies. He doesn't want to be alone. Yeah. Mm. So then, in May of the following year, Nilsson found a 16-year-old named Martin Duffy who had hitchhiked to London without his parents knowing where he'd gone. He'd been sleeping rough for four days after he got to London, 
and when Nilsson had found him in Eastern train station, mm-hmm. he was like, oh, why don't you come and stay with me? I'll look after you. Like, I'll give you some food. As soon as Duffy had gone back to his flat, to fallen asleep, he was, like, absolutely exhausted. And Nilsson then climbed on top of his chest and strangled him before dragging him into the kitchen and drowning him in the kitchen sink. Nilsson then dragged the body back to the living room, where again he masturbated on top of the body, before this time shoving it in a cupboard. After two days, Nilsson was unhappy that when the body was stored in the cupboard, it had begun to bloat, so again he wrapped it in plastic and put it under the floorboard. With the other body? Yeah. Okay. He's accumulating men under the floorboards. So then the murders increased and happened in a quicker succession. Mm -hmm. By the end of 1980, which was the same year that he'd killed Martin, a further five victims had been murdered, along with another attempted murder. Only one of those had been identified as 26-year-old David Sutherland. The others remain unknown. The bodies have now accumulated beneath the floorboards, some of them there over a year, and now they're covered in maggots and insects. Oh. And there's an absolutely foul smell yeah. that Nilsson is trying to cover up with kind of air fresheners. He's spraying insecticide twice a day on the bodies, on the floorboards, in the rooms, but it doesn't help. The whole flat still smells of decay. Imagine living next to that. There's insects everywhere. It must be disgusting. He decides that he can't look after these bodies anymore. And he takes up six bodies that are left in the floorboards, dissects them and cuts them up into manageable chunks and decides that he's going to have to put another bonfire in the garden to get rid of them all. But then now they're at the point where they smell so bad, he's having to burn car tires with them so that the smell of melting plastic and rubber is covering the smell of death. Mm. It was so big of a fire that kids from the neighborhood came to watch. And he raked through the remains of like the ash yeah. to make sure that there was no evidence left. He found a whole skull that oh. had survived and just instantly started to smash it with the rake. Just Whilst to get people rid of it. were watching? Yeah. But then by 1981, which is a year later, he'd got back to work murdering y- more young men. By April, he'd killed three more people. When asked about it later, He just casually said, it's the end of the day, it's the end of my drink, it's the end of a person. The floorboards get put back, the carpet's replaced, and I go back to work. No. 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 So his final victim at Melrose Avenue, the address he's been living at, was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow. He'd found him, so unfortunately, slumped outside of the front door of his flat. He'd been taking epilepsy medication that made him feel really weak. Okay. And he just happened to kind of collapse down in front of Nielsen's flat. So he goes outside 
Nielsen helps him into the flat and actually calls an ambulance. Okay. And takes quite good care of him. Martin's, or Malcolm is released from hospital the next day, mm-hmm. but is so thankful. He goes back no. to thank him for his kindness. He's then strangled and stored under the kitchen sink. Why save his life? To and then, then take him. it away, yeah? Yeah. So, a couple of months later, Nelson's landlord gets in touch and he says, you've been here a while, we're going to renovate the property. And he absolutely refuses. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to even just leave the property for it to be renovated and then he moves back in. He just refuses. Mm-hmm. They then offer him £1,000 to leave, yeah. which he takes and has to burn the remaining bodies that are underneath the floorboards. So then he has to move. The only place that he can find is an attic flat at 23 Cranley Gardens. The flat has no access to a garden and you can't store any bodies under the floor. So it's a nightmare for him. (laughs) He's got no options. (laughs) He's out of hiding spaces. So for the first two months that he lives there, Mm -hmm. he keeps luring numerous people back to the flat but doesn't have any way to kill them and store them. So he keeps letting them go. So is it an attic of someone else's house? It's like a, a big block of flats uh, and people live on different floors. But there's only one flat on the top floor okay. and it's his attic space. And while he's luring all these people back here, he never goes through with any kind of assault or murder. Mm-hmm. He just gets them really drunk and then lets them go the next day. Okay. In May of 1982, he meets Carl Stotter, which is a 21-year-old young man who's depressed after a failed relationship. Mm-hmm. Nielsen gets him really drunk, lures him back to the flat, the usual pattern. But he keeps telling him, no, we're not, we're not coming back here to have sex. I don't want to have sex with you. That's not going to happen. It's strange. Maybe he was thinking, like, new flat, new me. Maybe. It's the start of a new year. <laughs> He's got a grand. I've got a new flat. Yeah. Maybe I'll just stop murdering yeah. men. Maybe. He was trying. Maybe. So then when they're back at the flat, he gets them even more drunk. And, and then he tells them, oh, you can stay here. I've got a sleeping bag. Like, I'll put it on the sofa. You can sleep here. Don't worry about it. Still not going to have sex with you. So we're not going to stay in the same bed. Oh, okay. You've got the sleeping bag. I'm in my bedroom. Don't worry about it. But then Carl wakes up and finds himself being strangled while Nilsson's whispering, just stay still. Oh, that would be horrifying. Yeah. And also you definitely wouldn't be staying, staying still. No. You'd be doing anything but staying still. Yeah. So then he attempts to drown him and it looks like he's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. But Carl manages to raise his head above the water and scream, no more, please, no more. He's then submerged back beneath the water mm-hmm. and Nelson thinks that he's killed him. He thinks he's strangled him, he's drowned him, Patton's done. Yeah. Done. But then he realises that he's still alive. At this point, he starts to rub Carl's limbs and his heart 
mm-hmm. to try and increase his circulation and he actually manages to bring him back to life. He covers Carl's body in blankets, lays him on the bed and starts to look after him. That just doesn't make any sense. Your face of confusion <gasps> was my face of confusion learning about this. So over the following two days, Carl kind of drifts in and out of consciousness. But Nielsen's always there looking after him. He'd be petrified. He would. So when he gets enough kind of strength, he's recovered. He starts to ask Nielsen what has happened because he has memories of being choked and kind of being like someone's tried to kill him. Mm-hmm. He wants to know what's been going on. Nielsen explained while you were asleep, you got caught in the zip of the sleeping bag mm-hmm. that started to choke you while you were having like a nightmare. And I saved you and I put you in cold water to shock you awake. Okay. Not really, but you could see how... You can see what he's trying to do. So then instead of killing him, Nielsen leads Carl to a nearby train station. They say their goodbyes, Mm -hmm. and he says he hopes to see him again. No. No. But then after this point, it seems like this changed his ritual a little bit. Mm -hmm. So then at this new flat, three more victims are murdered. However, now when he's killed them, he really carefully and gently bathes all of their bodies, drives them off, coats them in talcum powder, before then immediately dissecting them. Once he's dissected them, he has to try and dispose of the bodies because he doesn't really have anywhere to store them. So he takes the head, the hands and the feet mm-hmm. and boils them oh. so that the flesh is easier to remove. Like then, chicken. Yeah. Then once he's got all these bowls of flesh, he gets the flesh, the organs and smaller bones uh-huh. and tries to flush them down the toilet just to get them out of the flat. And things that he can't get rid of, like bigger bones and like the torso of a human. Yeah. He has to hide in like a chest, in a wardrobe, in the bath. He's got nowhere to put all of this stuff. So then in 1983, he fucks up. Uh-huh. He calls the estate agent and he's like, oh, all of the drains are blocked. It smells. Everybody in the block of flats is complaining and it's intolerable for me, for all of the other people who live here. You need to fix it. Good be the bodies. A same person would assume that that's the flesh that they've been putting into the drains. Yep. So then when they open a drain cover at the side of the house, a dino rod employee called Michael Catron discovers that there is a lot of what he thinks looks like flesh and loads of bone but he got to the job just before he was about to go home he okay. thought it was going to be a typical block drain probably some hair yeah tissues and things so he doesn't really know what to do calls a supervisor and the supervisor is like okay we'll just come back tomorrow and he's like I don't know it looks really suspicious it looks like human flesh mm-hmm. Nelson overhears him on the phone and interrupts him and he says oh to me it looks like someone's been flushing kfc 
It looks like chicken. <laughs> what is that noise? On the washing machine. Oh, uh, is it? Oh, champion. Delightfully noisy people. Yeah. So, when Kataran and his supervisor both come back the next morning at 7.30, mm -hmm. all the drains have mysteriously been cleared. No more chicken. No more chicken. But they do find really small scraps of flesh mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have been able to reach in a pipe that links only to the top floor. Oh, he's well done fucked up there. He's absolutely fucked it. So they start to talk to the other tenants in the building and they learn that only one person lives on the top floor. It's Nielsen. Mm -hmm. So a detective chief, inspector and two policemen wait outside until he comes home. Okay. They don't want to approach him. They're trying to kind of catch him off guard. If they play it right, he might let them into the flat. They don't know. So the three police officers go into the flat with him when he comes home and they immediately notice a really strong smell of just rotting human flesh. When they ask him about what they found in the pipes, they're like, look, we found, we've tested it, we found actual human flesh mm -hmm. in the pipes that only come from your flat. He acts really shocked and bewildered. And he's like, oh, oh my God, that's ghastly. I don't know how that could have got, like, pretending so fake. he hasn't killed. Yeah. So many people. But then almost immediately admits to hiding a body in his wardrobe. Quite the change of tune. Again, you fucked it. No, no. In the drains? There's one in the wardrobe. But I don't know how they got there. Officer, please. <laughs> He's then arrested, arrested and cautioned, obviously, of suspicion of murder. Yeah. And he was escorted to the police station and they asked him, look, there's quite a lot of remains in the flat and in mm -hmm. the pipes and everything that's recovered. We need to ask you, is this from one person or is it from two? He just stares out of the car and really softly just says, 15 or 16, since 1978. That's creepy. Imagine if you were just in the front of the car, you'd be like, oh, bitch. I'd probably just stop. Yeah. When they continued to interview him, he was really adamant that he didn't know why he'd been killing people. Mm -hmm. And he even said, I'm hoping that you'll tell me that, when someone asked him what his motive was for murder. Really strange. Yeah, that's... So then on February of 1983, he was officially charged with the murder of one of the men, Stephen Sinclair. They just needed enough evidence of one person's name and all this evidence uh -huh. to actually charge him and then they've got more time to look into all the other right. murders. So whilst he's in jail they can yeah. get cracking on the rest. So he was transferred to Brixton Prison and he was then brought to trial on October of 83 so they've had what's that like six, seven months yeah. to build a case and he goes to trial at the Old Bailey and he's charged with six counts of murder two counts of attempted murder pleads not guilty to every single thing 
They read out the statements one by one. Yeah. And he's just like, not good. Not good. Not good. So, the jury retire to consider the verdict on the 3rd of November in 1983. Mm-hmm. So the case itself has gone on for quite a few weeks. The following day, the jury returns with a majority verdict upon six counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Okay. So they haven't decided on the other attempted murder. Right. They've dismissed that. Okay. The judge sentenced Nelson to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serves at least 25 years. At least. Which is what we've talked about before, that life isn't life. Yeah. But then... Oh. The minimum term of 25 years to life, which he had been sentenced to in 1983 was then replaced by something I'd never heard of called mm-hmm. a whole life tariff in December of 1994. This ruling determines that he's never released from prison. There's no chance of him ever being Is released. Is that a British thing? I don't know. But he accepts that. Oh. Oh, what, they offered it to him? No, I think they... Almost like it goes back to trial, but not a full trial. Oh, God. And they've said... Look, we're now going to enforce this on you that you have no chance of ever leaving prison. And he's like, mm hmm. That man. That man indeed. So after this, in 2003, he was transferred to a prison in Full Sutton, where he remained until he died on 12th of May in 2018. That wasn't too long ago. It wasn't. Since then, several items that had been confiscated from both of his homes while he'd murdered are on display at Scotland Yard Black Museum, which I think we should go to because it sounds really interesting. I've never heard of that before, but day trip. Absolutely. Where is that? I don't know, London, I'm guessing. Okay. The exhibits include the stove that he had used to boil the heads of his final three victims, knives that he'd used to dissect loads of different bodies, headphones that he'd used to strangle one of the victims, ligatures that he'd used to strangle the last victim, and the actual bath from his final address where he'd drowned no people way. and been hiding the bodies. I'm so curious to know what else is in that there museum. Me too. I think we should go. I agree. <laughs> so that was my story of Dennis Nielsen. That's so interesting. I think last podcast on the left have done that, you know. I think uh-huh. that's why I know it. But I didn't know if that was so much detail. Thoroughly. Mm. There was so much more. So every, so even though some of the victims haven't been identified, there are a few more murders, and every one of them is really heavily described. But I picked some that I thought were particularly horrible, yeah. like him trying to help someone and then trying to kill them. That just confuses me, because I don't understand. Where he's... What his game is. I know he's obviously not saying, like, anyway, but for him to be con- be concerned about someone, mm-hmm. nurse them back to health, call an ambulance, whatever, for them to go back the next day and for him to, for him to kill them. It's mm-hmm. like, what's your... And for him to strangle and drown someone, bring them back to life, and then just take them to a train station, be free, I'll yeah. see you again. Not where's your conscience, because it's obviously not there. But 
what's regulating that yeah mm -hmm. at what point have you gone actually no i'm probably not going to kill you seems today. like a sound look didn't die the first time i'll give him a second chance <sighs> i'm excited for a mystery what's a mystery no I'm just murder go mystery a murder mystery quite a long one mine is also really long okay mine does have a name oh well prepared mm -hmm. <laughs> thank you then <laughs> it's not a very good name are you ready Melrose Avenue <laughs> I don't know like Lord Lucan Ooh, there we go <laughs> I'll talk you yours was actually better so, I got my info from Lord Lucan, My Husband, The Truth. Um, that was a documentary about him. Mm -hmm. um, his wife was in it. Have you heard this? No, I don't think so. Exciting. And then I also got a bit from Wikipedia, which I can just hear every lecturer ever telling me off for using Wikipedia. Oh, well, I was going to say my entire thing today came from Wikipedia. Did it? And while I was reading it, I was like, I probably should do some other research and other sources but it was so detailed yeah and so correct because i already knew what this was yeah and i was like oh, just... see i do love wikipedia and murderpedia even though people can say their mm. own thing I, f I wholeheartedly trust them um even though lewis at work renamed that tinned wind tinned wind <laughs> um but i also got some from lordlooking.com that was really, that's where I got mm. most of it from, to be honest. That and the documentary. Mm -hmm. So, who is Lord Lucan? I don't know. Richard John Bingham was born on the 18th of December in 1934. So, cast your, cast your mind back, it's quite far. He was the eldest son of George Bingham and Caitlin Dawson, making him the 7th Earl of Lucan. So, is that a place? Lucan. Yes. Lucan is a place, but it's an island. Okay. Lucan in Dublin. Fantastic. So it is, whether he was the, he was from the south, so I don't know whether he, it is of that. Well, you can own, do you know when that man came in uh -huh. to pick up something from work? Ah, uh, yes. And you said, oh, he was a, what oh. was his name? Lord. Lord. No, not his actual name, because we'll get done for GDPR. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he was, was a lord. lord, yeah. You can get that for, like, £20 if you buy land in, like, Scotland or Wales, and you just get a little certificate in the post that says you are now Lady Amy Whitehead. Fantastic. <laughs> I'd like that for my birthday, <laughs> Imagine. So... But he, he probably is Lord. Yeah, so it's way back when, when it like these kind of um, names were quite thought of to be quite high, mm -hmm. quite thought of quite highly. Um, so I actually Googled what is an Earl, which is another clue. Good question. It's a rank of peerage. It's something, it's, so it said that as if that is the most commonly phrased ah, thing. I ah, see. A rank of peerage. Of course. But, Basically, it's just English hierarchy, mm -hmm. is what I've learned. Um, Duke is the highest. Then Mar Marquess or Mar Marquise? No idea. 
M-A-R-Q-U-E-S-S. So Marquess. I've never heard that word in my life. Um, and then Earls after that. Is and that the lowest? Um, no, there's a couple under that. Um, the website I got this information from was called standards.co.uk. Um, and that said during it, it was like, so if you're looking to marry an eligible royal, an earl is your best bet. Because it's oh. not too high, but it's still a good standing. It's still in the running. Yeah. So, life to live by. Life to live by. Rules to live by. You know what I mean. <laughs> um, so he lived a very well-off life. Um, he went to Eton College mm-hmm. in London. Um, other people that went here are like Tom Hiddleston, which I had to get that name because I love that man. David um, Cameron go there? David Cameron did go there. A lot. Boris Johnson went there. Um, apparently the whole cast of Made in Chelsea went there. Um, <sighs> and members of the royal family. So most recently, uh, both Prince William and Prince Harry went there. So it's like very big names. Um, and during this time, he picked up a sooth... sooth stroke. <laughs> A he super picked up a stroke. <laughs> he picked up a super healthy hobby. Do you know what I thought you were going to say what? when you went South, South African accent? And I was like, <laughs> at what point do you just mysteriously pick up a South African accent? In the poshest yeah. old boys school in England. No. <laughs> super healthy hobby. Super healthy. I can't say it. Trying say to say it in a South African fast. accent. <laughs> Super healthy hobby. <laughs> Sorry for anyone I've just offended. Anyway, he picked up gambling. Right. So, from 1953, he joins the army. He then leaves the army after a couple of years and works at a merchant bank. But through all this time, gambling is his main focus. Um, he So he decides to become a professional gambler and quit his day job at the bank. Um, and in March 1963, he's introduced to Veronica Duncan. She is the sister of the wife of Bill Shandkid, who is his mate. Um, and they get married the following November, so it's from March to November. They've not known each other that long. Yeah. Um, but in this documentary, she speaks and she says how lovely he was and how Aww. well they got on. Um, and they're very much in love during this time but as soon as they get married he kind of becomes a bit of a dick and stops talking to her and at one point I quote he says the point of being married is you don't have to talk to each other healthy relationship advice yeah so once they're married he's like fine we're married you do your thing I'll do my thing grand like he just he doesn't really speak to her at all Oh. Um, during this time, he racks up some serious debt. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really struggling with money, and John has about a grand left to his name, and that is about £10,000 now. Mm-hmm. But the thing with that is, if you have a house, a wife, and need money to gamble, that's not really a lot, because no. I guess you could gamble that away pretty quickly. In a day, I think. So this stress is getting to the couple, they start arguing a lot, but then six weeks after he's onto his last thousand pound, his father dies and he inherits all of his of father's course. estate. Of course he does. Yeah. And 
this is when he becomes the seventh earl and she becomes a countess of Luca. Did she know about his family when she married him, do you think? Yes, yeah. I think so. I think it was very... It She was thought to have done very well with herself. Yeah. That she's... She's married into some form of royalty. Yeah. Um, and they move into their family home at 46 Lower Belgrave Street on the 24th of October in 1964. They have their first child. Mm-hmm. And she is called La- Lady Frances. Do you think they speak now? Or do you think that child's been conceived in dead silence? <laughs> <laughs> Just like, how are Get on it. Shitty drop. <laughs> I'll have less of that from you. <laughs> Just pop this in your mouth. <laughs> I'll show you. That's <laughs> <laughs> not how you make children, though, so... <laughs> Very dreamed. (laughs) So, Lord Lucan's daily routine by now is return home at six. (laughs) Science by Amy and Al. I'm worried that your mum's going to hear me say, put that in your mouth. (laughs) Jenny's not started listening to podcasts yet. She's a. I've still got some time. She's got her iPad. I'll just be like, oh, what? Episode five. Oh, no. that's terrible. She'll definitely not cook you Sunday dinner again, will she? <laughs> or if she does, as she lays the plate down, you can put that in the <laughs> You know what it is? They'd probably make that kind of, Not that kind of joke, but they'd make. <sighs> they don't air. Uh, they like to embarrass people, myself included. So, by now, Lord Lucan's daily routine was return home at 6am, he sleeps until lunchtime, he then goes to lunch at the club at somewhere called the Claremont, and then by 9pm, Lady Lucan would join him, and then that would kind of just repeat itself day after day. So, in September of 1967, they have a son called George, and then... Three years later, it's followed by another daughter called Camilla in June of 1970. So Lady Lucan is just so concerned with making sure that her children are okay and all the maids of the house, because it's a like a five-story house. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people working in the house for them. And she's so busy making sure that everyone else is okay that she has little to no time for herself. Aww. And then she sadly suffers from postnatal depression after the birth of all of her children. Oh. So in 1968, Lord Lucan takes an interest in her condition. Um, so this is after George was born, but before Camilla was born. So yeah. in between child number two and child number three. He encourages her to have treatment, and she, agree- she agrees. I wonder what the treatment of the day would have been like. Probably nothing of... She was given... I believe she was given drugs, but I doubt. No way. Yeah, and um, so she believes she was prescribed drugs which were inappropriate for her condition. Um, and states subsequently that doctors have expressed amazement at how poor the treatment was that she received. Oh, God. Um, but he encourages her to have the treatment as long as she, and she agrees, as long as she's at home. Yeah. And not somewhere else. 
But by now, the relationship is breaking down. No. Um, she becomes increasingly concerned about her husband's continued heavy losses at the gaming tables. Mm. She thinks he was dangerously addicted to gambling. And that actually should... He should see someone about that. I do agree. He also flat out refused to put any money aside for any of the children's <gasps> educations. And Lady Lung Lady Lunken? Lady Lucan then gets a solicitor <laughs> to deal with all this stuff. Um, because of the way that he's acting and everything like that. She's just like, right, please do something about this. But her doing this causes him to do it. So he gets his own solicitors, which causes their relationship to deteriorate. And in 72, they separate. And they separate at Christmas time, which is absolutely devastating for the kids. But she gets custody and the house. Lucan adores his children. So he seriously wants them back. So then in March of 93, so four months after their divorce... Lucan gets a temporary court order for the children, mm-hmm. but she didn't know about this. So he, they're out with their nanny. The nanny comes to the front door of, like, the Lucan household. Yeah. She opens the door and she's like, I'm being followed. Turns around and Lord Lucan is there and he gets the two kids. Yeah. Um, and then collects Francis from school. And Lady Lucan is like, you can't do this, rings up, and they're like, it's court order. So it's temporary, but he is allowed the the custody of the children. Um, She then goes into a psychiatric clinic for a week following this, um, obviously breaking down. Lucan then tried to use these medical records to prove that she isn't well enough to (gasps) look after the children. Unfit mother. Mm -hmm. So he's been saying, get help, get this, get that, paying for this happily is now using that against her and these really make up a huge part of the custody battle Mm -hmm. but Lady Lucan argues that she doesn't have any past medical history of mental illness and this is only following her postnatal depression Mm -hmm. which isn't being helped by all the stress that is now being put on her Lord Lucan would also telephone so he would call Lady Lucan and provoke her into like telling her things and on this documentary she openly admits that she would call him name after name after yeah. name and if someone was provoking you you would you mm. would say exactly what you wanted them to know and um, but then he would record it i know so it now just seems like she's the bad guy yeah. in the situation absolutely and um, he later produces this in evidence against her it's usual for peers of the realm to win custody of their children mm. because they're so high up it normally goes in their favour and he is very confident about this mm. but in June to his surprise and mortification <gasps> the court ordered that the children were to be returned to their mother yeah no way. so Lady Lucan wins that one um, and he'd always been extremely obsessed and protective over the welfare of the kids but it's not clear whether this was a power move to kind of stick it to Lady Lucan since they'd divorced, mm. whether he just kind of had to have one over, like, to get back at her, or whether he was doing this to benefit the children because he genuinely didn't feel like she was a safe mother. Um, but following the court case, 
Lord Lucan is now in serious debt, like serious debt. He had to pay for medical bills, he had to support his family, pay for a nanny and live. And I can only assume he was a pretty terrible gambler because he's still losing at the tables. Oh my god. He tries at one point to buy off Lady Lucan, but she refuses. She just, she wants the kids as well. Yeah. I wouldn't, as a mother, want my kids to be looked after someone who's out till 6am gambling, oh, no. wasting away all their money. And bought for that kind of thing. They're your children. Yeah. In your... There's not enough money in the world, is there? Absolutely. So he's still super obsessed with looking after the children after all of this. And he hires some private detectives to watch the house. That are probably also super expensive. Mm-hmm. So he's just throwing money out constantly. Um, and when he goes to collect the kids for his, like, kind of allocated time, yeah. I guess, he secretly records when he goes into the house, kind of the conversations they have, what the house looks like, just yeah. anything that he can use. To win the children back, but then he finally has no money um, to pay the private detectives anymore. So he has to let them go, and yeah. then he just decides to do it himself. Right. So, on the 7th of December in 1974, Lucan is at his flat at about 6.30pm. And his friend has come over to visit him. At around 7.45, he drives his mate back home to drop him off yeah and it's believed that he left his mate's house at about 8 p.m now lucan owned a mercedes but for some reason he's driving around a ford corsair okay which he'd borrowed off his friend like a couple of weeks earlier but he kind of said to the friend can i borrow the car i need it for this night oh there's a bit of a time discrepancy as to what then happens but Lucan made a phone call to make a reservation at the Claremont Club for a late meal with his friends but the assistant manager says it was 8.30 when he called but the visitor that he dropped off said it was 7.45 before he left his house. Oh that sounds like corroborating a story that mm-hmm. didn't happen. So then it doesn't prove anything but it just kind of shows that two witnesses who fully believe they're correct are telling a very different story. Yeah. And a lot can happen in 45 minutes. Oh, yes. So, the what 7th of did December... did happen in those 45 well, minutes? Well, you're going to find out. Yeah. So, on the 7th, the 7th of December was a Thursday night. Okay. I like a Thursday. The night that the Lucan's nanny, Sandra Rivet, would normally have the night off. But this week, she'd asked to swap it for the Wednesday night because her and her boyfriend were going out. Oh. And they would normally go out on the Thursday, but for some reason this week, she wanted to swap it. So at 8.30pm, she is putting the two younger children to bed. Frances, the oldest one of the three, was in her mum's room, and they were both watching the TV. So you have nine o'clock news. I think they said they were watching Mastermind beforehand. Okay. So Sandra, the nanny, pops her head in, the room and is like, I'm going to go downstairs to make some tea and would you like any? And this is at about five to nine. This is also different to their normal routine because it would usually be Lady Lucan that would go downstairs at about 9pm to make the tea and just before she went to bed. So there are two reported sightings of Lucan 
near this time. The link man, who I didn't know who that was, but his job kind of basically seems to be a gossip between different groups of people. Like, oh. he said to inform people, like, through different groups of people. That's what Google said. Um, so, him, he was at the Claremont and said that he saw Lucan drive up at 8.45pm to ask if any of the usual crowd were there. Mm-hmm. He's convinced that Lucan was driving the Mercedes that he actually drives. Yes. And according to him, Lucan said he would be back later. But another employee believes that he saw Lucan standing on the step of the club at about 9pm. Okay. Back to the house. About 20 minutes or so after Sandra had gone downstairs, Lady Lucan begins to wonder why she's not returned yet. Where's my tea? That's just thirsty. Parched. She wants some tea. So then she goes downstairs at about quarter past nine to the ground floor and looks into the kitchen, which is in the basement, but it's pitch black. Oh, no. And she tries to turn the light on, but the light doesn't work. No. She calls out Sandra's name, but there's no answer. Oh, I'm getting like, goosebumps. <laughs> so she just assumes she's gone elsewhere. It's a big house. There's four floors. It's really easy to get lost. She then hears some noise coming from the cloakroom. All of a sudden, someone rushes out of the cloakroom and hits her on the front of the head four times. She's still very near the steps. She's screaming, but her attacker tells her to shut up. Just after he does this, he shoves three fingers, gloved fingers, into her throat. And there's a massive struggle. He tries to push her down the stairs and he tries to strangle her. And at one point, tries to gorge her, eye <gasps> her eyes out. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it came. But this badass lady grabs him by the balls and fights back. What a woman. Right? So, but she, when he said shut up, she is sure. She was like, that is my husband. Even though they were in the dark, as soon as he said that, she was like, that is John. <gasps> so the struggle stops after she fights back. And she kind of comes out of this kind of confused. She's being hit in the head. When she finally calms down, she realises she's sitting in between her attacker's legs. And she puts her hand down and feels something metal. And she said it felt like it was covered in bandages. But she also said that she could feel her hair stuck on this thing. And she kind of turns to her attacker. And just says, please don't kill me, John. And she then asks where Sarah is. Uh -huh. And he says, she's dead. Don't look at the body. Really strange, right? Oh. So Lady Lucan is super fast on her feet. And she's just like, okay, so what should we do with the body? I'll just stay inside until my wounds heal. Don't worry. We'll get through this together. Yeah. He agrees and he says, have you got any sleeping tablets? She's like, yeah, they're upstairs. So he drags her upstairs. He don't, doesn't really walk. He kind of like affects mm. her. And um, <laughs> he, at this point, sends their daughter back to bed. So he pops his head. They go towards um, their, like her man's bedroom where yeah. their daughter is. And he just pops his head in and he's like, oh, Go to bed. 
like I'll sort your mother out. He then puts a towel on the bed so she can lay down without getting like blood everywhere. Yeah. And whilst the attacker's in the bathroom, getting like a wet cloth and a glass of water for her to take these sleeping tablets, she realises that the tap's on, door's kind of closed, she can just quickly run out. Yeah, and he won't hear. So she sprints out the front door and to the nearest pub. Oh, but she's left her children in the house with this man. But then she was so sure that because he loved them so much that all he wanted was them. So he wouldn't hurt them. Yeah. So she, once she's out there, she sprints out. She said, I didn't shout anything when I was out there. I waited until I got to the nearest pub where I knew people would be. Mm -hmm. And she shouts, help me, help me, help me. I just escaped from being murdered. He's in the house. He's murdered the nanny. So these people, straight away after that, she's like, she breaks down. They're like, lie down. And try to really help her, like sort her out. They then call the police. And once the police get to the house, there's no sign of the attacker. Um, He's not there. But they do find, like, John's car keys, his passport, his checkbooks, his driving license, wallet, and glasses. And his blue Mercedes car is parked outside as well, which is what the Linkman thought he was driving. Had his things not been in the house before, like his passport and his driver's license and stuff? They had. Okay. But it follows on. Okay. So, keep that in mind. The day after, there's a massive manhunt for him because he's just disappeared out of thin air. Lady Lickin confirms that she had not seen anyone else at the house and that she didn't recognise the sack in which Sandra's body had been found after the police had stormed the house. We find out that he went to see a friend, Susan Maxwell Scott, and he she said that during the night she'd heard the ringing of the bell but she just thought it was kids being kids so just like ignored it what is the ringing of the so like the doorbell, oh, the doorbell okay yeah but she was just like yeah that sounded really like mysterious didn't it? i in my head i pictured like a hill and it's like a really big and someone's like <laughs> not quite just the doorbell, just the doorbell okay. that would have been better um but then Finally, um, he comes back and she lets him in the house and she's actually the last person to see him alive. He tells her that he had interrupted an intruder that was attacking his wife in the house. He said he scared this intruder off and then went to look after his wife. But then in the state of shock, Lady Lucan got confused and thought he was the attacker instead. Um, And then he's, like, kind of run away because she's putting the blame on him. All of his friends believe him and don't believe for a second that he did it. Lady Lucan is currently, whilst this is all happening, in hospital. And she finds out that her children were getting court-appointed to like away from her yeah she's been in there not very long at all but she goes to the court she gets out of hospital goes to the court and sharp changes that 
and she is regranted custody of the children. Yeah. So later, the car that Lucan borrowed from his friend, the Ford, was found abandoned in New Haven, which is a port town. Yeah. He then sends out some letters that these are all read out in court. One is to Bill Kidd, this which is the husband of Lady Lucan's sister. Yeah. This reads about how him he interrupted this fight between Lady Lucan and the hitman. He says that Lady Lucan has always had something against him and asks Bill to look after the kids. The second letter is also to Bill, and this is read out, and this mentions an upcoming sale at Christie's, which would satisfy bank overdrafts, and it was signed Lucky, which is a scambling name. He's called Lucky Lucan. And it's found that his total overdrafts exceeded £14,000, although it's believed that that's not actually all of it. And I converted that to money now, uh-huh. and that's £146,870. So that's a lot of money, and that wasn't even all of it. And the third and final letter was sent to the friend that lent him the Ford. Mm-hmm. And he refers to the evening as a traumatic night of unbelievable coincidence and asks his friend to let them know, like, let the children know that he cared for them. So in all of these letters, he does talk about looking after the children. Yeah. Um, Lady Frances, the oldest sibling, Mm -hmm. made a statement a few days after this had happened. She says that she had been in the second floor bedroom, so her mum's bedroom, watching TV. She'd heard her mother scream, but had assumed the cat had just scratched her. Mm-hmm. Which at first I was like, yeah, But then again, she's a young kid, and you're not going to assume anything like that would no. happen in your home. And she said later that her parents had walked in together, and that she had noticed that her mother had blood on her face and her father was wearing a full-length coat. Frances was sent up to bed by her dad and later heard her father calling out for her mother and saw him searching around the house and then finally going downstairs. She also told the police that during the last weekend that they'd spent with their father, they'd told him that Sandra is normally out with her boyfriend on a Thursday. But this was the only week that they weren't. Mm -hmm. So the police testify. They say that they found the murder weapon. And the weapon, she said, that was wrapped in bandages. Yeah. It's left near a door leading down to the basement. And was a length of lead piping wrapped with tape. And a light bulb had been been found on the chair by the stairway in the basement. And that had been taken from the light at the bottom of the stairs. Which is the only one that could be turned off by the switch at the top of the stairs. So that when she tried to turn it on, it wouldn't work. So mm-hmm. she'd just have to go down in the dark if she wanted to go to the kitchen. This also meant that he wasn't able to see that it wasn't his wife that he initially attacked. Yeah. So I would like to know when he figured that out. Mm-hmm. If he was in the pitch black, it was probably when she went downstairs and called for Sandra. Then why would he be panicked. in the cloak room? Hmm. Good point. If you thought that you'd got who you wanted. He'd be downstairs. Yeah. Oh. 
I don't know, I'm not a killer, but... No, <laughs> I'm pleased. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know when he realised that, but I'm guessing that was a bit of a shock. Um, a casualty officer testified to Lady Lucan's injuries. He says she had seven large lacerations on her skull. She had bruising to her eye and injuries to the palate and on the back of the throat, um, which all completely in keeping with the description of her attack. Yeah. In that the injuries to both women were very similar in nature. Um, Sandra was five foot two, which is exactly the same height as Lady Lucan, and they looked really similar. Um, so it's, it is believed that Sandra is never the intended victim and just due to it being in the dark that he's murdered the wrong person. Um, their blood groups are then brought up in court. Yeah. So Sandra's blood group was B and Lady Lucan, I don't, I always want to say Lady Lincoln. Lady (laughs) Lucan is group A. Mm -hmm. At the site of the attack, there is group A blood stains um, and her hair is found that looks exactly like Lady Lucan's. There's a stain that has both Group A and Group B blood types, which is believed to be a mixture of both of the victim's bloods. Mm-hmm. And there was evidence of both types of blood being in the Ford, as well as Lady Lucan's hair also being in the Ford. Wow. The notepad was also found in the car that shows the paper that he'd been taken out to write the letters on. Yeah. The piece of lead piping found was grossly distorted and was stained with both type A and type B blood. So at the bottom of the stairs, where they called it the breakfast room, Mm -hmm. which was where they'd went to make the tea, was another attack site. And this had numerous blood splashes. Mm -hmm. These stains were all group B, so that's assumed where Sandra was killed. And there is one small spot of blood on the floor that was group A. And the sack was heavily stained with group B blood, but with some indications of group A. So we don't know whether after he's realised she's gone, he's gone downstairs. Not really sure, but for some reason there is group A blood. Do we know what blood group he is? We do not. Um, Because she may have fought back Mm -hmm. and that could be his His blood. blood. Um, but this promoted some questions about whether Lady Lucan had been down in the basement after the murder, yeah. um, as it would. Um, but the inquest, inquest jury is out for only 31 minutes, and their verdict was murder by Lord Lucan. Yeah. It was the last time that an inquest jury exercised its right to name a murderer, because now it's like, if you were going to try for a murder, it would be... L murdered this person. Yeah. But this time they said they believed who the murderer was. Okay. Um, and as a direct result of this case, the right was abolished by criminal law in the act of 1977. So, since that day, Lord Lucan has not been seen. Not been confirmed to have been seen. Yeah. Um, he... After that car was found, nothing else has heard of him. There has been some sightings. So, since he's disappeared, there has been a few theories. One is that he fleed to West Africa. And a flight attendant actually had said she arranged flight tickets so that Lord Lucan's children could be flown out to see him. And she arranged them very sneakily. 
but whether that actually happened what? or not is so it said that basically he fled to West Africa and then yeah. they've paid a flight attendant but they didn't go get his no it's it says like it's not being corroborated yeah but that's what this flight attendant said one theory is that he had committed suicide by stuffing rocks in his pants after he realised, like, the mistake. Yeah. And drowning himself. When I was watching the documentary, Veronica, Lady Lucan, said she believed he threw himself off the ferry. She said, I think he got out the car, somehow miraculously got himself onto a ferry without a passport, without ID, because he left oh, all God, of yeah, those at everything. home. So there's no trace of him, I like ID wise, and she said, which is she said it so like she believed it so much, but it's awful. She said, he got on the ferry, wait until he was halfway across the channel, and jumped off the ferry, but then she said he purposefully would have aimed for his body to go under the propellers, so that no one would find it, and she said that's how he believed he would have. That's so specific, isn't it? really really strange that's like they've almost had a conversation of, if you were to run away yeah, if you what were would gonna you do? if you were gonna escape a murder charge yeah but she thinks he's done it in a way that they'd never be able to find it out whether he was dead or alive um and there's also been sightings in australia new zealand ireland holland amsterdam and by 2017, it was believed that he's been spotted 70 times. Okay. But. No one knows. No one knows at all. Um, however, just last week. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah, very recent. Um, it's come out that Neil Berryman, who's the son of Sandra Rivett, because yeah. she was married with two kids. Oh. He's spent years trying to find this man who's suspected of killing his mother. Yeah. He now believes that he's finally tracked her down, him down, sorry, <gasps> to Perth, Australia. Berryman's suspect is an elderly Buddhist man living in a shared home. He's seriously ill and is more or less housebound uh-huh. in that he's awaiting a major surgery. He told the newspaper, I believe I've tracked down the man, Lord Lucan, who murdered my mother. He has been alive all this time, lying about who he is. <gasps> lying about it to his new friends. He also cites a facial recognition test, which shows a similarity of 85%. Okay. Which, between him being, like, 30, and him now being, like, what, 90? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, maybe not 30, maybe, like, 40. But he has since taken the case to Scotland Yard, (gasps) the cold unit, and is confident they're going to continue the investigation. (sighs) And they have confirmed to reporters that the unsolved case is still open. Berryman added, the people he lives with know he has a mystery past and what he tells them doesn't add up. They've had their suspicions for many years. They are fully aware he is a mystery elderly Englishman and is not who he's claiming to be. And that is the (gasps) murder of Sandra Rivett, disappearance of Lord Lucan and possibly discovery of Lord Lucan. I'm going to be thinking about that all night. I love stuff like this. Yeah. Oh. And he's such a famous, like such a famous name. And there's photos of him everywhere. It's not Is like that? you can't. Yeah. Oh. I'll probably have one up here. Oh wow. Oh my god. 
but he just disappeared off the face of the earth, and no one knows where he is. So I really hope that is him. Yeah. Because that guy. But how could they... Could they do, like, familial DNA between his children and the man in Perth that they think it is? Yeah, I guess so. I wonder what his children think. Yeah, there's not really anything about his children. At one point, it's a um, in the documentary, Lady Lucan said that at one point their youngest daughter, Camilla, just turned around and was like, Daddy's not coming back, is he? And she was like, no, I don't think he is. So I imagine they're not best pleased with him, but then if that lady did actually book tickets and they went to see him, then... It's really strange. And then if someone said that they still saw him at the club... Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't understand. (laughs) Oh... Do some research tonight, you might find out some I'm going to, I'm gonna crack the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it here first. Al Scholes. Find Lord Lucan. But that's my story for the week. That is really interesting. I've never heard of that before. Have you not? No. Oh, I really like it. Because that's possibly one of the only ones where I've been like, ah that but once again it's like, oh I need to know. But with that one you seem quite confident that it is him. The mystery for you is where yeah. he is. Yeah. Whereas the mystery for me is still, I'm not sure that that was him. But I would love to know, like, where he's been. I'd love mm-hmm. for someone to fill in the gap. Of, like, like, 40 years. Where of... he's just not been anywhere. <sighs> yeah. Since I talked about so much about hate and mysteries, well, I actually really do <laughs> like them. I thought oh. I'd do my own. Any recommendations for this week? I don't think I've watched anything. Have you not? No. I watched that Ted Bundy documentary. Did you? Yeah. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's very different. It's from the um, from the victim side of it. <laughs> rather than, do you know how the confession tapes was very much like led by Ted and it was yeah. all about that. It's mostly about like how people were taken from situations and a lot mm. of people who survived his attacks were there. But it's, they talk about so, do you know how he kind of had a family? Yeah. Um, and he had a woman that he was in love with, but then he would leave her and go commit the murder. Mm. She talks on it. Her daughter talks about how much she grew up to love this man and how lovely he was and mm. the kind of man that he wa- yeah. Ted was. And she, at one point, got so sick of him dragging her man back in down this rabbit hole, even when, like when he was in jail and once he'd found out about these things. Yeah. She kind of did a massive thing. I don't want to ruin it for you. But she makes a bit of a stand. And it was interesting to see that even though she was so in love with Ted, when she noticed things weren't adding up and then they moved, the murders moved from Washington. When he moved from Washington and moved to the place where he was and she goes to the police and she's like, this seems like Ted. Like, I can't ignore the signs. Yeah. And they're like, we've looked into Ted. It couldn't be Ted. And then, like, oh, even God. her dad is like, you need to think about what you're doing. Yeah. This could ruin his life. And then she's like, and at that point, I realised that he charmed even my dad over me. Oh. And I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear it from the side of 
the victims and mm. the victim's family. And it still blows my mind that people would go to the courthouse and, like, fancy him and yeah. worship him. And, like, when he proposes to Boone when she's on the witness stand, like, it just, everything about it blows my mind. But she's not in it. Okay. And neither is their actual daughter. She's not in it. But the the non-biological daughter of Ted Bundy's in it. Yeah. I think you'd enjoy it. I think I would. Give it a watch. On an unrelated topic, me and Scott watched a Netflix documentary. It's called The Great Hack, which is based around kind of the data mining scandal about Cambridge Analytica. Yes. Which I thought, in the technology sector that I work in, I understood. Yeah. Then when I watched it, there's a lot that I didn't really understand or hadn't known about. And also didn't even know what they were as a company. So... I don't know a lot about it. Mm. Is it to do with Facebook? Yes. Yes. I know that much and Mm -hmm. that's about it. So it was really interesting, and actually I thought it would have been quite dry, but there was a lot of scandal and a lot of backstabbing. Ooh. And, like, they call it whistleblowing. Okay. But you can tell that a lot of people have come forward for the wrong reason. Right. It's really interesting. How long is it? Is it a series? Um, it's only about an hour and a half. It's just one, like, film, almost. Oh, okay. I'll get on that. Mm. That's everything. Mm-hmm. If you have any suggestions or want to ask us questions or whatever, um, you can get to us on Instagram or you can email us at foliadarepodcast at iCloud.com. Yes. And our Instagram is we are underscore foliadare. Give us a follow. Well, we were going like. to do a poll last week. We were. But we didn't do, do a, a poll. poll. We did not do a poll. Maybe we'll do a poll this we week. Do a poll. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you really enjoyed. We really want this podcast to do well. So if you could leave a review in iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we would really appreciate it. If you like us and you want to see a little bit more of what we do and kind of how we operate and how we work, We've got our Instagram page, which is we are underscore foliadeur. And we also put on photos of the things that we talk about each episode, which is really quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, guys, check it out. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.